Um, let's take a word in the Bible and uh, let's go to 1 Peter. We are taking a journey through a book written by, by Peter, one of the disciples of Jesus. And um, today we're going to be talking about integrity and influence. How do, we, how do we live lives of integrity? And by living lives of integrity, how do we influence the hearts and the lives of others, especially if we want them to come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and to experience uh, what we have experienced as a result of our walk with the, with the Lord. So uh, Peter addresses this issue. I wish today would have fallen on what's going to be next week, which is about husbands and wives, but I just didn't plan that accordingly, right? So it's just, I'm just going verse by verse th- through this book. So we're going to be in verses uh, 13 to 25 this morning. So how many of you... Um, are involved in sports, your kids are involved in sports, you've done sports, all the above, right? So probably all of us, we watch sports, we're involved in sports at some point in our lives, our children are involved in sports, and one of the things that every sporting event has are called officials, and there are officials on the field, and so who is the keeper of the game, the rules of the game? Uh, The officials are, right? So if there is an infraction of the rules on the basketball court or the soccer field or the baseball, it doesn't matter what it is. If there's an infraction of the rules, here's one of the things that you cannot do, whether you're the home team or the visiting team. You you can challenge the official, but you can't overrule the official. And one of the reasons why you can't overrule the official on the field is because they have what is called a rule book. And a part of that rule book is giving the rules and regulations that govern whatever sporting event you are a part of. Now, one of the things I know about these officials before they step out onto the field to be an official, they have read that book, they have memorized that book, they're going to consult that book. You can say whatever you want as a parent, and you can yell as loudly as you want, and you can tell them they are blind, and they are idiots, and whatever you want, but they're always going to appeal back to their source of authority, which is what? The rule book. And that's going to be the basis of their decision on the field. Well, in a very similar fashion... You and I as followers of Jesus Christ are like the officials on the field of planet earth because we are representing the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God has one mediator who is Jesus Christ, and Jesus wrote a book through the Holy Spirit, it's called the Bible. And so the Bible is God's source of authority, it's like I don't want to call it a rule book because it's not just about rules. It's about, the, you know, the Word of God is living, it's active, it's alive. But it is the basis by which God governs his kingdom. And so I can make appeal to God, but God's always going to go back to, to the Word of God. And so the Word of God, the Bible helps us to, de- to develop lives of integrity that can in turn help us to be people of great influence. Where do I learn how to live a life of integrity? God's word. This doesn't come natural for me. It doesn't come natural for you because we have a nature that is bent towards what? Rebellion. We don't like authority unless we're the one who's in authority. Then we're all about it, right? If I'm in authority, if I'm the boss at work, then everybody ought to fall under me, right? But if I'm the employee rather than the boss, then we, we critique and 
the boss because we don't want to really be under that person's authority. So God has given us this book as his blueprint as to how his kingdom operates and functions, and it is the benchmark by which I make all decisions in life. So whether I'm trying to make a decision about my parenting or my finances or what kind of employer or employee I'm going to be or what kind of neighbor I'm going to be or what kind of friend I'm going to be, I always want to consult the Word of God because it is God's authority. So the question I want to ask you this morning is, and this is on the top of your outline, under whose authority had you placed your life? You see, every decision you make in life, you're basing it off of somebody's authority, whether it's your own or somebody else or what God says. So who is the basis of your authority? What authority do you turn to for everyday life? Because here's the deal, and this is the second thing, fill in in your outline. Before we can exercise authority, we have to be under authority. And so I'm just simply saying what Peter's going to say to us. Listen, we live in a society like Peter did because they can be really crappy. And we also may have an employer who's really harsh. So if I, as a follower of Jesus, want to influence that person's life, how am I going to treat them? How will I respond to them? How will I relate to them if I really want to have influence? Well, that depends upon who's the authority over your life. So one of the things that God challenges us is to come back to his book that he's written for kingdom citizens because we want to allow Jesus to be the Lord of our life, not just Savior, but the Lord of our lives, the boss of our life, the CEO of our life, and Jesus will always take us back to the Word of God that helps us understand how we are to respond in these kinds of situations in life. Let's say, for example, you have a neighbor, and they're horrible, right? They're just antagonistic, and, you know, they're just always on to you. I, my, my wife and I had a neighbor like that. I mean, he would hurl rocks over his fence at our dog, and, I mean, just all kinds of things. He would show up on my doorstep and just start, you know, just start in on me because there was you know, some gap between his fence and my fence, and I'd put some stuff in there, and he just berated me about that, you can't do that, and, and on and on. So how do you respond to those kinds of situations? This is what Peter's going to talk about. He's addressing, remember, a group of people who fell under the authority of a very imperfect, authoritative regime called the Roman Empire. And the Christians in that day had no rights they barely had any rights. Unless you were a Roman citizen, you just didn't have many rights. And that regime was led by emperors who were horrible. They treated the Christians horrible, persecuting them. And so the people to whom Peter's writing, I mean, they, they had suffered severe persecution. The bodies of their friends, the blood of those bodies had soaked into the sand of the Roman Colosseums as they threw them in there to allow wild animals to take them out in life. And so Peter is going to address this subject of unfair treatment because those who he's writing to were the target of unfair treatment from the government, from friends, from employers, from um, fellow citizens. So the question is, what do we do? How do we respond when we are treated unfairly? 
Well, here's our three natural responses. The first one is what I call the aggressive pattern. That is, you want to place the blame on others, right? The reaction is not only to focus on the person who has mistreated you, but you want to keep a running tally of all the times they've mistreated you and to the degree or the severity by which they have mistreated you. In other words, you're keeping a mental ledger about how they've mistreated you, how they've hurt you, and in your mind, the thought is, I don't get mad, I just get even. And I'm going to pay you back for everything you've ever done that has hurt me and harmed me. And so that's a very aggressive approach, right? You can do that in many ways. You can do that physically. You can get physically uh, aggressive with people. I mean, you, we see this all the time and you know, YouTube videos and Facebook tip videos. People just launch out into somebody in, in an irate way and they just, all this anger that is pent up inside of them just boils over until somebody does something that just like pushes their button and then all of a sudden it's like full-fledged rage, road rage, whatever rage in the airports, wherever it may take place. And so that's one way that we, we, um, we retaliate, we get back. You push me, I'm pushing you back. You say something about me, I'm saying something about you. You post something on Facebook about me, I'm coming right back after you. The question is, if that's my approach, how much influence do I really have? You know what happens when people are raging with one another? Nobody is listening. You don't care what the person's really saying. All you care about is you want to get your point made and get your point across and make them feel horrible about what they've done. That's one approach. The second approach is the passive pattern where you may not be aggressive. You're just really passive. You just, you don't, um, you, you just stuff everything, right? All the rage just gets placed down inside of you and you just keep tampering it down and tampering it down and then you just look for people with a sympathetic ear and you want to say, you know, life isn't fair. I've not been treated fair. I've been treated unjustly. And so you try to tell your story to as many people as possible because you want to, them to side with you and say, oh, you poor thing. If I, that happened to me, I would feel the exact same way. And some of you live life with shades drawn and doors locked because, and this, this is a quicksand feeling sorry for ourselves. It just kind of sucks us under over time. But there's a lot of anger even in the passive person's life. And buried anger is very toxic. It's like putting toxic waste into a natural uh, river that is supplying water to a city. And so you keep just stuffing all of that and it is buried in you, but it comes out in passive aggressive ways in every single relationship you have because you can't categorize well i'm raging at this person and i'm not at this person you're not that good or we can do the holding pattern where you just kind of postpone your feelings and your bitterness now leads to resentment and resentment um begins to permeate everything and here's what happens. You will bleed all over people who never cut you. Because you just got to get it out. You've got to let it out. And this becomes extremely toxic. Would you agree with me that we are living in a time of toxicity in our society? 
where rage and nobody's listening to anybody. You can't even have a conversation with anybody now. They just, they're going to label you. The, the rage and the hate just starts flowing. And so nobody's listening to each other. There are many things that need to be fixed in our country, but nobody's listening to anyway. Political parties aren't listening to each other. Neighbors aren't listening to each other. Employee employers aren't listening. Friends aren't listening. I mean, I have a friend in high school uh, who... We have a mutual friend. They got together. They're on the political opposite extremes and got together for a dinner with the, the husbands and their wives, and they got into an argument with one another, and it got so heated and so toxic, they split ways and haven't talked to each other in over two years. So this is kind of where we are. Is there an alternative way that is more helpful than harmful? Is there a way that honors God and allows us to maintain our integrity so that we might be people of great influence? And the answer is yes. And this is what Peter addresses in these verses. So let's pick up in chapter 2, verse 13. Submit yourselves for the sake of the Lord, for the Lord's sake, to every authority instituted among men, whether to the king as the supreme authority or to the governors who are sent by them to punish those who do wrong and commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish men. Live as free men, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as servants of God. Show proper respect to how many people? Everyone. Love the brotherhood of believers. Fear God. Honor the king. So here's the command that Peter gives in this verse, these verses. It is the word submit. Now, when we hear the word submit in our Western mindset, we tend to like, you know, back up and shrivel up and like, uh. well, what that word means is simply, um, and I put this on your outline, to submit means you're simply placing yourself under the authority of someone else, willingly, not begrudgingly not forcefully, but I'm willing to submit or surrender myself under your authority. When God established his kingdom, he established it with four governmental entities. The first is self-government, right? We, we, are to, we, as followers of Christ, are to learn how to walk in the Spirit. And when you begin walking in the Spirit, you develop the character of the Spirit, which is the fruit of the Spirit. And what is one of those fruits? Self-control. So that self isn't out of control, right? If I get angry, I don't let self get so out of control that I harm you because I'm angry with you. I don't abuse you with my words. I don't abuse you with my fists. I, 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 I curtail that because there's something more at stake than just getting my point across, okay? That's kind of the idea of submission. So when Jesus is Savior and Lord of your life, you, you chose to surrender yourself under his lordship so now you let the Spirit of God and the Word of God help govern self so that I don't lose my integrity and thus lose my influence. Like if, it, let's say I have a really crappy neighbor, which I've had, and I just go off on this person, how much influence do you think I'll have in their life from that day forward? Now, I had, what they did was absolutely wrong. It should have never happened. But I'd rather maintain my integrity and influence and not just like launch into them, right? That's the idea. Then there's family government where, you know, you have a family, husband, wife, and then they say children come along and, 
Guess who challenges the authority of their parents? Kids do, right? When they're young, what's the first word? No. No, I'm not doing that. And as they grow and mature into adolescence, it just gets worse. And you know, as an, as an adolescent, you look for every way you could to usurp the authority of your parents and do what you wanted to do, because that's our natural bent is to rebel against authority over us. And then there's the church authority, where God has placed people in positions to help us to grow and walk in our relationship with God and walk. And then there's the governmental authority or civil authorities to which God has assigned leaders to uphold and carry out the standard of God's God's laws in civil arenas. For example, if somebody murders somebody, uh, then there are judges who, you know, if someone's taken to court and they're, they're judged, they're ruled over by a jury, and then the judge renders the sentence. And so this is the, this is the way the kingdom operates. So much of our judicial laws in America are based upon the word of God, upon certain laws that help a society function in the best way possible. But now I want you to understand about institutions. None of them are perfect, right? There's no perfect government. There's no perfect, um, whether it be federal or state or judicial or anything else, because we are, we are utilizing um, imperfect people to oversee these imperfect institutions. But in this case, our perfect God works through you know, imperfect authorities. And so we are to submit to those, those authorities. Now, every culture has a default. <laughs> and the default is either towards rebellion or respect. How many think that the default of America is respect? Really? No. How many think it's rebellion? I'm going on the side of rebellion. And here's why. I'm going to give you a threefold reason why our natural tendency, our default is rebellion, is because number one, <laughs> we were sinners by, nature's, by nature and choice, right? The Bible, we, all through the book of Romans, we, as we studied about that, we know that when we come into this world, we come in this world spiritually dead. We are disconnected from our creator and we come with this spirit of rebellion that starts very young at age and continues to grow in progress. And so we push back against authority. We don't want anybody telling us how to live, what to do, who to follow. I mean, we're just like, look, I'm my own boss. I'll make my own rules. And therefore, I know when I reached adolescence, I was so stinking rebellious, and I just looked for, you give me a rule, I'm just looking for a way to break it, right? Which got me into trouble a lot. Uh, and so this is just kind of our natural bent, because this is the autonomy. There's the essence is rooted in two things, autonomy, which means I, need, I don't need to be under authority, and pride, which says I'm smarter than anybody else. And you live that way, right, until you're about 25 years old, and your brain actually was fully developed, and then all of a sudden you, you looked at your parents and you thought, well, you know, my parents weren't quite as stupid as I thought they were. Amen. So that's one avenue, and, and we're in America, right? So America was founded on protest. That's why we separated from England. That's why on July the 4th we blow up things in order to celebrate our freedom, right? So, and then you couple with that the, the, the expectation for generational rebellion. We have a clothing store called The Gap. 
And the gap just simply says this. Every generation is trying to figure out under whose authority will they live. I grew up in the 60s and 70s. It was simply uh, no authority. Like we, we tried to push off every civil authority there was. We're not listening to anybody. We're not following the police. We called them pigs. And we didn't want any institutional authority over us. It was drugs, sex, rock and roll. That's all we cared about. And so we, then we grew up and we started having kids. And then every generation, you go to a high school, every single generation in high school tries to figure out who are we? What are we going to be? And they dress a certain way, claiming well, we're not going to be like anybody, but they all dress the same way. Uh, so uh, th- this is just, this is our society. So what this means is not only are there no perfect people, there's no perfect system, institution, or organization that we can build which is perfect, but here's the push. God says he has, he has instilled eternity in our hearts And what that means is we long for perfection. We want perfection. We desire perfection. We want people to be perfect. We want the laws to be perfect all the time. We want the authorities over us always to be perfect and behave in perfect ways. But because we live in an imperfect world, it just doesn't and cannot happen. And it absolutely drives us mad. And we push back. There's a lot of ways you can push back. And so submission is what the Bible teaches us is an invitation for us to influence the culture that is around us, depending upon how I approach it. So if I come at culture just with a mean-spirited, judgmental, you yeah. Not much influence there. But if I can come at culture like Jesus did, he's our premier example, who had tremendous influence. Here we are over 2,000 years later talking about Jesus. Jesus never traveled very far in his entire lifetime, never wrote a book, never put, you know, he wasn't taped, he wasn't videoed, he wasn't put on social media, and yet he has more influence than anyone who has ever lived in this world. Why? Because he maintained his integrity in the face of societal pushback. So that's the command. Here's the reason behind it. He says in verse 15, he says, it is God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish men. That word silence means to close the mouth with a muzzle. You know, Christians in the very first century who were receiving this letter were targeted with all kinds of slanderous remarks. And we talked about these a couple of weeks ago. I mean, they they were accused of worshiping and following other gods, that they were going to overtake society or or the empire, and they had secret meetings. And so to silence or to muzzle the rumors, Peter encouraged them to what? To be submissive to the powers to be. Are there still ignorant and foolish people? Yes, and they're loud. In fact, They get louder and louder. If you argue with somebody, they don't get quieter. They just get louder. And then they throw labels on you because they want to shut you up. 
If you don't agree with everything I say, I'm going to shut you down. I'm going to call you out. I'm going to I'm going to post things on Facebook that will make you shameful and and you're going to just like blush. People are going to find out things about you you never thought they would ever find out. And here's what God says in his wisdom and his kingdom character and conduct. He says, "Listen, I can silence the harshest of critics if you'll do what I've asked you to do. Submit yourself under my authority, pull out my word, reap its wisdom, and start following it as a means by which to silence your critics. I've had my share of critics. I've had things posted about me on Facebook and all kinds of other social medias from time to time. But here's what I do not do. I do not respond because I do not care what people say. I don't live for them. I live for an audience of one, my heavenly father. I'll let him take care of my critics. I'll just try to respond in a way that is gracious and a way that Jesus responded. And we'll see in just a moment exactly how he did that. So here is the covering. The covering, and what I mean by this, is that obedience to God's authority opens up the doors for God's provision. Now, there are a series of of things that that, um, Peter mentioned here in a rapid succession in verses 16 and 17. He says, live as free men, but don't use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Right? Evil happened, therefore I'm going to do evil. They did something bad to me, I'm going to do something bad to them. They said something wrong, I'm going to say something about them in return. This is what he means. We're not going to banter back and forth. Somebody criticizes me on Facebook, I'm not going to jump on Facebook and criticize them back. I'm not going to jump on some other social media platform and rip them about what it is they've done or said. Or That's slander. The slander is trying to make other people hate the person as much as I do. So I will spread rumors, I will say things. Whether they're true or not is irrelevant. If I want to be a person of integrity, if I really want to have influence, I'm not going to go toe-to-toe, back and forth like MMA fighters. You know, you kick me, I'm going to kick you back kind of thing. He says, no, no, I'm going to let God handle that. And then he goes on to say we are to show proper respect for, for everyone. So here's what Peter was not a part of. He wasn't a part of hashtag not my emperor Facebook group. His wasn't. Jesus never did. Jesus, what did Jesus say about the emperor? Hey, render unto Caesar what is Caesar and unto God what is God's. Jesus never instructed his disciples to, you know, overtake Rome or to, you know, to try to, you know, cripple or topple the government. He says, I know, I understand there are nasty, evil emperors, but if you really want to have integrity and influence, to the highest levels, do it my way, and I will make provision in ways you never dreamed possible, which, by the way, when you fast forward in the Roman Empire's history, they collapsed from within, and Christianity was on the the scene, and 
thousands and thousands of people were coming to faith in Jesus, not because they stormed the capital, but because they were willing to storm the gates of heaven with their prayers, and God released things from heaven that could not be explained here on earth on our, our, our people and places of concern, and God did miraculous things, and all of a sudden the empire was turned upside down. Here's another one he said, love the brotherhood, the believers. You know, live, live in a way. We, we, we have the right, we, ha we have a constitution, we have the right for peaceful protest. We have the right to challenge our government. I'm not saying that you shouldn't, you know, you, you shouldn't speak out against things that are wrong. There are a lot of things that are wrong, injustices in our society that, yes, and I'll talk about this in a minute, yes, we need to speak out and against those things, but there are ways you can speak to a topic that is truth-driven and grace-filled as opposed to being hate-driven and judgmentally motivated. One will rob you of your integrity and influence. The other will expand your integrity and your influence. He says we are to do this in the, in the fear of, of God. Well, what does it mean to fear God? It simply means that I know that God knows better than me, and I'm just going to be willing to submit under his authority, and I'm going to find out what God says about this, and then that's how I'm going to operate. That's going to be the basis of how I approach this situation. I'm not going to get caught up in mob mentality because what happens is when you allow your emotions to drive you rather than sound reasoning and we're all wrapped you know whipped up into a frenzy and then we we start saying things and doing things that we would not normally say or do and we just kind of follow the group and we're not even sure why we're following but we're following and it just results in mass chaos and nothing gets resolved and he says that we are to honor the king. Well, what about people we know who are wrong? The word honor means, doesn't mean you, that you agree with them. It doesn't mean that you endorse them or you support them or you fund them or you bless them. It means that in your disagreement, you honor the relationship by treating them in an honorable way. Listen, our goal as followers of Christ is not to win the argument. My goal is to win the person to Jesus. And Peter says we're to do this sober-minded, remember, a couple chapters ago. Because I know, I've been drunk enough times, uh, pre-Jesus, to know that when I'm drunk, I'm, I'm not thinking right. And I get loud and boisterous and out of control and this is what Peter says, we have to rein in our emotions so that we are approaching this from sound thinking, not just emotionally driven. Now, I understand that emotional drives are real, that emotions are really wrapped up in the, in the, in the injustices that are happening in our society in the here and now. I'm just simply saying, if I just get wrapped up in emotion, though, I can't sit down with somebody and even talk with them because we're just all wrapped, you know, whipped up into a frenzy and nobody's listening to anybody. And when nobody listens to anybody, nothing gets resolved. 
This is, all, this is all what Peter's saying. So people ask me the question, well, what about civil disobedience? Is there a time that we need to push back against the government? And the answer to that question is yes. The Bible does talk about civil disobedience, and it gives many examples of that. So, for example, if the government comes along and says, hey, Greg, you can't preach Jesus anymore. We consider that hate speech. I'm sorry. I'm preaching Jesus anyway. I don't care what the consequences are. You can throw me in jail if you want, but I'm not going to stop sharing about Christ. I'm not going to stop about sharing about the only way that you can be made acceptable in the eyes of God. This is my calling. This is the word of God. His authority trumps the government's authority. And so here's how I would summarize civil disobedience. We are to submit to authority unless it forbids us from doing what God commands or it commands us to do what God forbids. We have cause for civil disobedience. And there are examples of this um, all uh, throughout Scripture, but what we don't want to do is to create anarchy. The kingdom of God is a, God, is a kingdom of order. The kingdom of Satan is a kingdom of disorder. God's culture is one of harmony. Satan's kingdom is one of anarchy. Anarchy is when you try to destroy or to eradicate the rule of law. Civil disobedience, rightly done, actually honors and appeals to the law, whereas anarchy opposes and destroys it. God has put certain laws in place, whether we like them or not. So like, for example, I don't like the fact that I have to drive 55 miles an hour. And I have on occasion exceeded that, to which I look in my rearview mirror and get the blue light special, which now I'm paying a hefty fine. Because the last time I had the blue light special was in a work zone, which means the double the fine. It was really expensive. All right, so we can fight against law, but laws are there for a reason. If the laws are not good and need to be repealed, there is a process by which that happens. But I understand we get frustrated because things just don't seem to go as quickly as we want them to go. But in the Old Testament, for example, there was examples of civil disobedience. For, for in the book of Exodus, the midwives, when the Israelites were under the you know, Egyptian um, rule and authority and the Pharaoh put down an edict to the midwives that said, every Hebrew, Hebrew woman who gives birth to a boy, kill it. And they said, we're not doing that. Well, that's infanticide and racism. We're not doing it. And then in the book of Daniel, when his friends Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego would refuse to bow before King Nebuchadnezzar and honor his statue, you can honor the emperor, but he, they said, in essence, we're not bowing, we're not worshiping the emperor. And so what were the consequences? They got thrown into a fiery furnace. But what did God do? He made provision, Right? Now, when the king looked, had the furnace ramped up seven times hotter than normal, and then when he peered inside, there was a fourth person with those three individuals who was Jesus pre-incarnate, and they came out of that fiery furnace absolutely unscathed. When the same government said to Daniel, it is illegal for you to pray, 
Daniel said, I don't care what you say, I'm praying. So he would throw open his windows so that everybody could listen to him. And it brought him a trip to the lion's den. And while he was in the lion's den, God shut their mouths, provisions, supernatural provision, so that when he came out of the lion's den, Daniel had such tremendous influence over the entire government of the Babylonian empire, his name was etched in history. I'm simply saying is that to honor God, you know, even Peter himself had civil disobedience once, landed, got beaten and thrown in jail because of it, because he was told he couldn't preach about Jesus. Honoring the emperor, speaking up for others, living with this tension is going to make you like, like odd. It's okay to tear apart a policy. It's not okay to tear apart a person. This is what the Bible teaches us. We're, we're supposed to be praying for those who are in authority over us. We are not the tribe of the donkey or the elephant. We are the tribe of the Lamb of God. I'm not saying all voting choices are equal or that the election doesn't matter. I'm not saying that you shouldn't belong to a political party. But at our core, we should stand above and apart from all of them, willing to honor and praise rulers from both parties, where we can, and critique them where we must. What we cannot afford to do as a church is to make it sound like if you're not of a particular political party, you're not welcome here. That is flat out wrong, and it's not of the Lord. So let me wrap this up, because I'm out, out of time. So... Peter goes on to give an example between an employer and an employee. And let's say you have a really crappy boss. <laughs> and some of you have had really bad bosses. I, I get that. I understand that. And Peter basically says the same thing. Is that here's how you approach that boss. You don't do it harshly. You don't do it critically. Um, you can talk to them. Nowhere does the Bible say that you're a doormat. That, you know, you have to work you know, 50 hours, but they're only going to pay you 40. That's not right. It's not legal. You have legal, legal ramifications. But what Peter would say to us is this. If you have a boss that's horrible, um, approach it in a way that you can maintain your integrity and your influence. And I'm going to use my wife as an example. Because when we first got married, she worked for a very large insurance company. And I'll remain nameless. She had a horrible boss. She, he was, she was treated horribly. He, he would put her down and make fun of her in front of other employees. What my wife did not do is ridicule him. She didn't like, you know, get all of her friends together and say, let's campaign his office against his office and let's pick it outside and, or let's, you know, just really make him look horrible in the eyes of others. She just simply chose to quit. She walked away. But when she walked away, she walked away with her integrity and her influence in place. And here's the provision of God. From that time forward to today, she has never had to look for a job. Everywhere we have moved, a job came looking for her, even the one she holds now. It was time for her to transition out of the office she was in, and she receives a phone call from a dentist who says, I want you to come work for me. 
This is what God will do if we maintain our integrity. So let's close this up with the example of Jesus. Notice what he said about Jesus. Jesus suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. Jesus was the only perfect person here on planet Earth. If anybody could have retaliated, if anybody could have pushed back, it would have been him. But notice what he says. When when they hurled insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. Who is he entrusting himself to? His heavenly father. He says, I'm going to submit myself and surrender to the will of the father, and I'll let God sort this out. He himself bore our sins. Now it gets personal. Whose sins is he bearing? Yours and mine, right? Bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for we were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your souls. So let me fill in your blank, because if I don't, you'll get really mad at me. Here's what Jesus did. If you, if you were to take what Peter just said and you, you'd narrow it down, here's Jesus' example he left for us. He says that Jesus surrendered himself on behalf of the Father regardless of the consequences. All right? So if, if our society comes to the point and says, hey, Greg, you can't talk about this, you can't talk about this, but yet the Word of God addresses it, I will address it because I am a... I'm a follower of Jesus, and I am a pastor who's been called upon by God to teach his word. And so I will challenge those social injustices, and I will fight for those who are being, you know, pushed down and pushed back because that is the right thing to do, and I'll just let the consequences fall where they may. But I will do it like Jesus did it, not with anger and fury, but with truth encapsulated in grace. Secondly, Jesus was so loving that he chose to forgive. You see, God doesn't want hatred built up in our hearts. Remember when we talked about right out of the gate? What's the pattern? How do you normally respond to those who mistreat you? You want to shove it down? You want want your your, your soul to become so toxic that you're just, rather than forgiveness, it's anger and it's bitterness and it's resentment and it's revenge that eats you alive. No, 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 no. The Bible constantly challenges us to forgive others who have harmed us rather than retaliating against us so that we make sure that no root of bitterness springs up within us. Jesus was so pure that he refused to seek revenge. I'm not going to seek revenge against anybody. That that is not what God has called us to do. And Jesus was so humble that he chose to live like a servant. Do you remember what Jesus did when he knelt as a servant and he washed the feet of Judas who was about to betray him for 30 pieces of silver and hand him over to the Roman authorities? It's the example that Jesus left us. So here's the bottom line. Remember, ungodly ungodly action requires godly reaction. And then we maintain our integrity and we maintain our influence 
and you silence your critics, you point people to Jesus, and you bring them into the kingdom because God has now unleashed the empowerment of his spirit upon the life and the heart of that person. Let's pray together. Father, um, I know that in my own heart and life and, and probably in the hearts and lives of many here today, we, 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 we can think back in our lives and point at times and events and circumstances and people who have deeply, deeply hurt us. And Father, we know that in our society there are things that are happening, going on there that have created tremendous pain and agony in the hearts and lives of people. But God, in, in our heart, we, we want to be like Jesus. We want to maintain our integrity and our influence. And so, Lord, we come to you today and just say simply, Father, this is hard for me. This is really hard. This is not my natural bent. This is not my natural approach. And so I pray, Holy Spirit, that you will just unstop our ears that we might hear your voice and that you might take your word and just like a, a scalpel in a surgeon's hand that you begin cutting out from within us everything that just wants to push back and get back and retaliate and, and God just do horrible things, whether it be verbally or physically or, or a thousand other different ways that we can seek revenge against those who have hurt us and harmed us. Lord, I pray that you will cut out the bitterness and replace it, God, with the love of Jesus, that we might live his example to the world around us. This is our calling that you've placed on our lives, and we want to be Christ, even towards the harshest people who have hurt us the deepest. And Lord, for some here today, maybe it starts with a parent. Maybe it's a spouse, maybe it's a sibling, maybe it's an employer. There are a thousand different things that, that we can develop bitterness and hatred towards. So, God, I just pray for your healing presence to show up here today. I pray for those who have not given their heart and life to Jesus, because I know, Father, they have no capability of doing this on their own. It's not until the love and the life of Jesus moves inside of us and empowering us with the Holy Spirit that we can do what does not come natural to us. And so I pray, God, for their salvation today, that they'll open their heart and ask Jesus to be Savior and Lord of their life and the forgiver of their sins. And God, you've promised that you will do just that. You'll forgive them all, past, present, and future. You'll indwell them with your Holy Spirit. You will clothe them in Christ's righteousness. And you will give them the Holy Spirit to enable us to be people of integrity and influence. It's my prayer for each and every person here today. In Jesus' name, amen.